the Cardinals are on an all-star break as we talk today, so it's time for another Cardinals Off Day podcast. This is Ben Godar. I'm here, as always, with my good friend Ben Humphrey. Ben, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. I think uh, the Cardinals and Reds are perhaps doing a little bit better than me. I don't think any of them probably wanted to play on Sunday after the uh, scorching conditions for the game on Saturday with 101 degree heat. And I think they were pretty happy uh, to have a rain day, you know, like when you were in school where you have the snow day and you're really excited you didn't have to go to school. And this would be like a snow day on a Friday. I feel like uh, Sunday's rain out was. So I think the Cardinals and Reds are probably doing a little bit better than me because I had to go to work today. uh, And they had today off after having yesterday off because of the weather. So, uh, but also a lot of fun. I I love everything about the all-star game. And so uh, I enjoy this break from Cardinals baseball because we get to enjoy in some low stakes exhibitionism uh, that kind of celebrates baseball and it's a lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. And of course it's also a, a good time, not quite halfway through the season, but kind of, we consider it halfway through the season. So it's a good time to uh, reflect back on what's happened, look ahead to what might happen in the second half as we really get into playoff races. And so we will be digging into uh, a number of those things later. We've got a number of questions to answer. Uh, but Ben, before we get into that, uh, what have you learned? Um, I have learned that we were wrong, Ben. Uh, last episode, we said we were not that worried about Harrison Bader's plantar fasciitis uh, because we thought he would get the rest he needed and be able to come back. And since then, uh, he has been unable to come back as quickly as the team thought. He's undergone some physical therapy. And uh, we also issued the caveat that, hey, this is a guy whose who's primary tool and and his a lot of his value as a player because of his defense and base running is derived from his speed. And now I'm a little bit worried. Um, but I also think uh, that while we should be more worried than perhaps we thought last episode, that uh, Dylan Carlson playing some good defense in center field probably makes it a little bit easier for the manager to try to rest Bader like we talked about last time. Uh, and prevent this from flaring up again. But nonetheless, uh, I'm a little bit worried about Harrison Bader uh, over the remainder of this season uh, and how healthy his feet will be and how good he'll be able to play and leverage his speed uh, over the remaining months of the season. Yeah, I agree with you. And uh, I believe last show I said, I, I definitely said I wasn't that worried. And I think I pointed to Albert Pujols, who played with uh, plantar fasciitis <laughs> for most of his career. And soon after we stopped recording, I thought to myself, you know, Albert's legs were never exactly the uh, most important part of his game. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, he I, I was I was thinking, you know, you made that comment to me over the weekend. And I was thinking like, like how many balls at first base as a Cardinal did Albert Pujols take as many steps, you know, as like Bader's like lowest 10 fly balls in a week. You, you know what I mean? Right. Like the ones that he had to move <laughs> the yeah. least about. And you're absolutely right. Like he, you know, he had to move, don't get me wrong, uh, yeah. and cover some ground, but it, it was uh, often, it was often more of a lean than a move though. Yes. 
Yes, and especially now, watching him on Saturday, I, I really appreciated kind of the the aging NBA veteran type movement at first base from Albert Pujols, where uh, it's, it's definitely a work uh, smarter, not harder approach over there for him nowadays. Yeah, he can, he can still uh, post up, but I don't want to see him try to drive the lane anymore. So No. Yeah. Well, Ben, you um, had learned something that we were wrong about. Um, I have learned something that we were right about. And unfortunately, that has to do with Tommy Edmond. And I obviously we know that Tommy Edmond has been in a bit of a slump. But I, I boy, I looked it up today and it's it's a little worse than I thought it was. So Tommy Edmond since May 1st has a, a way to runs created plus of uh, 89 um, and for each of the last two seasons he was at 91 and that's something you and I have often mentioned um, you know saying that you know this is a below average offensive player um, and kind of questioning why is he uh, stuck in the leadoff position for this team um, and so looking back over the last three years uh, Tommy Edmund is the team leader in plate appearances and so again I just have to question why is our team leader in plate appearances <laughs> the guy with an 89 weighted runs created plus over those three years um, that's good for 10th place in terms of weighted runs created plus on the Cardinals uh, just behind Lars Newtbar. so uh, you know I have been really impressed this season with, uh, and obviously I knew Tommy Edmund was a good defensive player last year. I genuinely did not know if he could play shortstop. He clearly can play shortstop. I think there's no question that Tommy Edmund should be the starting shortstop on this team, especially since really the only other alternative is Edmondo Sosa, who's, whose offense is, is pretty dreadful, frankly. Um, so, you know, I'm not arguing that he should not be starting, but th this looks like a ninth place uh, hitter to me. And again, batting order, bat lineup order doesn't matter that much. But, um, you know, I, I, I think we, we just we see so much kind of inflation of Tommy Edmonds uh, value. It's just just worth noting that that's what we've we've seen thus far. Well, and this is a this is a good example of how game to game batting order doesn't matter. But the cumulative effect yes. of if you commit to someone can have an, have an impact. Yes. And when you commit to playing someone like Tommy Edmond and batting him leadoff, you're committing to a player who's going to make a lot of outs and is going to hamstring your offense, in particular against right-handed batters. And it's long been our position that Tommy Edmond uh, should start and bat leadoff against lefties. Um, and probably not start all that much against righties. And I don't think much has happened this year uh, since the end of April to change that position. Um, and even for me, it didn't really change at all this year. Um, and so uh, what we have is you're looking at someone who just frankly is not a leadoff hitter. And I don't know why the Cardinals insist on pretending that he is. Yeah. And, uh, it's hamstringing the offense, but I, I agree with you. I've been pleasantly surprised with his defense at shortstop and he's perfectly fine to, you know, keep that seat warm for Mason Wynn. Yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> and then once, like. and then, yeah. And then once Wynn is ready, uh, Edmund can fulfill his destiny as a utility player. Well, and Ben, I think you put it well. Um, yes. It do, batting order does not matter much 
game to game. But over the course of a season, and certainly over the course of multiple seasons, it adds up. So just for some context, Tommy Eben has had 1,317 plate appearances in the last three years. Dylan Carlson has had 1,030. Uh, and Dylan Carlson's been a 107 weighted runs created plus hitter over that time. Um, about... Uh, uh, about 20 points, you know, 20% better than uh, than Tommy Edmond. Uh, so, you know, essentially, you know, you've given 300 plate appearances now to this this player who's a who's a you know lesser hitter. So, um, again, something you know, I think we learned here. I had definitely been encouraged by some of the very early results from Edmond. I still think probably he's been in a little bit of a low low spot here lately. I think hopefully he'll rebound a bit. I think a couple shows ago I made a prediction that he'd go from that 91 WRC plus for the year to maybe like between 95 and 100. And I know when we had Dan Zimborski on, his Zips projections had him I think at like one. 103. So, um, you know, approaching average, maybe even at average, but, um, you know, I'm still hopeful he can kind of get there. But again, just, just for context, he's, he has been below average since, you know, May 1st. So, uh, get him out of the leadoff spot, Ollie, come on. Um, Ben, before we get into our main topics, I just want to remind folks, um, they can pick up one of our Gormania t-shirts by going to, uh, bit.ly, um, slash Gormania. Um, the link is on our Twitter account as well. Uh, and Ben, I was wearing one of those Gormania shirts when we were at the ballpark over the weekend and Nolan Gorman hit a home run. I'm pretty sure because he saw me in the shirt. Yes. And, uh, folks, I was walking next to Mr. Godar. Uh, through the bowels of actually not just the bowels, just out getting concessions. And we walked past this couple and uh, I, I could not tell if they were married. They, they may be married. They may be dating, whatever. Uh, the woman of the couple turned to the man and said, with respect to Mr. Godard's t-shirt, did you see his t-shirt? It said Gormania. <laughs> that's a, and I got a real kick out of that. That's the kind of excitement <laughs> these are generating folks. So, uh, anyway, check those out. Um, again, the proceeds from that um, go to benefit the nonprofit more than baseball that serves uh, and helps minor leaguers out. So um, we're not profiting from that. We're trying to do a little good with it. Hopefully it's a fun T-shirt. Um, but, uh, you know, Ben and I were in St. Louis this weekend um, to catch a couple games along with our good friend Dan, who helps us out on social media. Um, and, and one of the reasons we were there, um, it was uh, the uh, a blogger and podcaster day. So there was sort of an event around that on Saturday, and we had the opportunity to um, uh, be involved in a Q&A with uh, John Mozeliak, um, ask uh, questions, kind of listen to him. So uh, Mo had a number of um, interesting things that he said during that Q&A that I think we wanted to um, talk about here. Uh, ben, do you want to do you want to go first or you want me to throw something out that stuck out to me? Um, well, I, I thought he had uh, quite a few uh, interesting things to say about uh, his job and, and where he sees the Cardinals at this point in time. And, and one of those things is something that I thought really reinforced some of what we have said about the Cardinals and the way they have handled players like Matt Carpenter in the past. And we gave a lot of credit to uh, Mike Schilt in those uh, discussions. And it was, uh, so for example, with Matt Carpenter early in the year last year, we said, I mean, he is very clearly giving him a chance to succeed and earn more playing time. 
uh, or fail and, and lose that right to more playing time. And they're doing it in a way that allows him uh, to have the satisfaction of knowing he did not take advantage of his opportunity, but also so that the rest of the players in the clubhouse can see how a, a player has been respected and given the opportunity, uh, and he was unable to succeed with it, and how that helps uh, the manager's position with respect to the clubhouse, um, but then you know also the the players who are getting opportunities instead of that player. And, and one of the questions was about relief pitchers. Um, and off the top of my head, I believe TJ McFarland specifically uh, was targeted with it. And Mosellock said something that is 100% dead on. Um, and it's something that I, I agree on and have often used as an analogy, you know, when having a beer with you or other friends watching a game. And it is... Uh, brought on just kind of with a with a broader life experience where you know would you want your manager to just fire you if you had a bad month <laughs> and you probably wouldn't want that and by that same token would you and Mosellock did not go this far but I'm going to go this far because uh, I feel like a lot of folks uh, gave Schilt some criticism and have given Marmal some criticism about you know, failing to call players out in the media. But by that same token, if you had a rough week or a rough day, would you want your manager to go tell your local newspaper, well, you know, John Doe, he really sucks. I wish he weren't a part of our team and <laughs> I wish he didn't have that job and uh, he's underperforming. And what Mosellock said that I thought was really true, if you want people uh, to have buy-in and to trust you, you need to give them an opportunity to work their way back. Yeah. And I think that is 100% true. Um, and I am not someone who f has felt that they up to this point should like cut or DFA TJ McFarlane. Um, and in particular, because if you look at some of the, the stat cast data, he seems to be making some improvement at least with how his, his fastball is running. But I think you need to have a, uh, a setting where you allow a player the opportunity uh, to improve and show that he belongs on this team. And also it shouldn't be forgotten. You know, he came in uh, around this time last year and was excellent down the stretch and is one of the reasons the team made the postseason. And yeah. I think you also need to honor that because he's shown you that he can compete. Um, but it also made me feel good because it showed that the St. Louis Cardinals as an organization are not going to have a knee-jerk reaction to a small sample size of poor performance by a player. They're going to allow that player the opportunity to work his way back. And I thought that was good to hear. Yeah, I agree. And it, it is interesting how easy it is to slip into kind of fantasy sports mentality and feel like, you know, move this piece out, move this piece in. Uh, even, you know, when, you know, many of us, myself included, have have managed people and we know that like that's not that's not the way you can do things in the real world. And it's easy to forget that, um, you know, while these are athletes and obviously it is special circumstances where they're on field performance really matters. Uh, they are still people in those kind of human management skills still manage. I agree. I thought that was interesting as well. Um, 
you know, I thought I might uh, highlight you know, the question that I put to Mo. I, I was really curious with all of the uh, changes that have happened in terms of how expanded the role of front offices are, um, you know, since he started in the organization. Uh, I was just curious, you know, what was something that was very different now than when he started um, that, you know, he was particularly proud of or, or thought was interesting. And uh, the example he gave was uh, just the manager and specifically that, you know, the manager will ask questions of the front office now. And, um, you know, he said that was something that never would have happened in the past, that basically the only people who had input to the manager were some of those advanced scouts, you know, and those are the the guys that are out watching the other teams in the division and maybe have, you know, to report, you know, something about, well, you know, this guy looks good, this guy doesn't look good, this guy's not handling the fastball, etc. But, uh, you know, now Mo said with all the, the horsepower in the front office, uh, the the managers do um, you know ask them questions. You know whether it's about you know lineup construction or shifts or things like that. And and he was kind of you know quick to qualify that and say you know I don't set the lineup, etc. But basically these requests come in from the manager for more information. The front office kind of provides the information they have and backs it up, saying you know here's what we've seen, here's the evidence of that. And, and then leaves it, you know, to them. So um, I thought that was interesting. And, you know, um, I think certainly it, it also is interesting that it really, uh, you can clearly see with Marmol, um, you know, it looks like a manager who is who is utilizing more of that that data and being much more nimble in terms of how he's he's uh, making all of those decisions. Um, so that was that was one thing that I found particularly interesting. And I think uh, in a, in another answer, uh, specifically about Marmol, he he said something along the lines, and I'm going to paraphrase it here, but it was something along the lines that Marmol was interested in how they, as in the front office, can make him as manager better. And I thought that was uh, a very interesting uh, way to term that because. I mean, I'll be frank, I can't imagine Tony LaRusso being terribly interested <laughs> in how the front office uh, can make him better. Um, and it also made me wonder how much Mike Schilt was interested in that. And so I, I thought that those answers were, were very interesting. Um, another one that uh, I found to be uh, pretty interesting uh, overall in terms of Mosellock's comments was, uh, and, and this is just something that I have been interested in and been advocating for for a long time, and it was really brought on by Mark Cuban when he became owner of the Dallas Mavericks. I believe he might have been the first he, he might have made the Mavericks the first professional franchise to order a chef. And I was just thinking to myself, when that happened, like, why don't major league teams do this? And why don't they do it in the minors so that the players are eating well? And he gave a very long answer about kind of the evolution of post-game spreads and how when he started in the 80s, there were there was only so much food and all the players knew, like, you had to get to the buffet or what have you early or all the good food would be gone. Um, and now they have like three proteins and, and they eat well, but nonetheless, major leaguers still tell him that they could eat better. 
Uh, and then he was talking about how they've, they've tried to address that in the minors as well and how it's difficult. These types of things are difficult because what's good to one player is not good to another, and it's very difficult to please everyone. And it's an area where, where they have tried to improve and are continuing to try to improve. Uh, and I, I found all of that very interesting because I, I think we have all had experiences in our lives where uh, the old adage that you cannot please everyone comes to mind. And it sounds like that is the experience that you have if you're the president of baseball operations and you're trying to set up a post-game spread for ball players. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I guess the, the last piece that I wanted to mention, and, and he spoke for 45 minutes and covered really a lot of topics. But, you know, one thing that I heard him say that I don't know that I had actually heard specifically before had to do with um, that study that the team did on um, potentially moving the outfield wall in because of, you know, maybe the wind patterns and things um, being a little different after they um, added the two uh, new kind of uh, uh, you know, DeWitt Towers, um, as I'll call them there, <laughs> in, uh, in Ballpark Village. And, and the two things that he said that I, didn't, I don't know that I heard before, he said, yes, we did that study, um, but we kind of put on hold taking any action on it because, number one, we wanted to see a year's worth of data from using the humidor, which, of course, this year, Major League Baseball, the Cardinals and every team are playing only with baseballs that have been in the humidor. And also, he said that they expect there to be a strike zone changes. And, and Ben, I, I took that to mean um, the kind of the robo strike zone, I think specifically, um, although I don't know that he actually um, articulated that. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, you know, we knew that they did this study, we knew that they had kind of shelved it, but it, it sounds like, you know, it's not necessarily shelved permanently, but they're just, you know, considering the the changes that that are happening right now because of the humidor that could be happening because of the strike zone. I think it frankly makes a lot of sense to say, hey, we're going to hold off on dramatically changing the ballpark because here's two things that could also really change uh, the offensive environment. So that was interesting, um, I thought, as well. So, um, uh, Ben, anything else you wanted to say about that that conversation or should we move on to uh, talk about the draft? Um, I think we can move on to talk about the draft because I think we can kind of talk about some of his other comments when we're answering some of our uh, listener questions. Um, yeah, no, that sounds that sounds great to me. And, um, you know, I think Ben and I wanted to touch on the draft, of course, um, which has, has been going on. Um, I, I would point out that, uh, you know, Ben and I are not Kyle Reese, so <laughs> we don't necessarily have uh, super uh, extensive knowledge of each of these individual players that the Cardinals have selected. But um, even so, uh, Ben, what would you say has stood out or been of interest to you um, about the, the draft so far and kind of the, the tactics uh, and the guys that the Cardinals are going after? Well, I have been pretty interested because I think the general consensus uh, amongst the experts was that this was not a strong draft for pitching. So, of course, what have the Cardinals done early? Um, and, and we are recording this uh, on Monday evening, so the draft is not yet over. Um, but the Cardinals had a focus on pitching overall, uh, it seems. And something that we should say is that uh, MLB teams do not draft based on need, and they don't even try to fill things out 
in a given draft. So if I take a catcher, I might take another catcher. If I take a second baseman, I might take another second baseman. And in the Cardinals case, if I take a left-handed starter, I might take another left-handed starter or two or three. Um, and that's because, you know, all of these players are unlikely to succeed in that role and make it to the majors. So yeah, and they're also, trying to take the best talent available. Yeah. And, and even those guys that are advanced college players who they say on the, on the TV show, they say, Oh, these guys could be quick risers. These guys could be in the major leagues tomorrow. That's a load of shit. <laughs> Most of these guys are going to be two to three years before they're there. And as you said, some will rise quickly, some will rise slowly, some won't rise at all. So there's just no way to to draft for need because you, you don't have a realistic idea of when those guys would arrive and what's going to happen with the guys who are on your team now that you think are going to be around in two to three years anyway. And I, I have been really interested. Uh, I have no doubt that the Cardinals are not doing this, uh, but I... Uh, have been joking for the last, I don't know, three or four years, uh, just because the Cardinals have had trouble finding left-handed relievers that, uh, you know, if I were the Cardinals and I had a choice between a righty and a lefty starter, I would probably just go with the lefty uh, because if he doesn't make it as a starter, we might be able to use him as a reliever. Um, and, and this year uh, they, have gone really lefty heavy um and in a way uh some of them look the arm slot looks uh lower than what we've seen in the past when we've we've heard a lot of phrases like uh you know downward plane or downward tilt on the fastball and so you know the obvious implication of that being, hey, that'll help get balls on the ground so now we're gonna see movement in a different way, which may also help put balls on the ground um, and we're gonna have players who you know there may be a little bit of a reliever danger there uh, you'll sometimes hear a phrase along those lines where they don't know if a pitcher will be able to stick as a starter but you know even if that is a danger such as it is you know you yeah. look at a, a Zach Thompson for example and and you still might have a fast rising useful reliever uh, who can get lefties out, but with the new three batter rule is not completely helpless against righties. And you, you kind of wonder how all of that came together and worked, or if they just looked at the board, this is the best guy we're going with him. Yeah. And Ben, it's funny you say um, reliever risk, because I've been thinking about that term today because we did see it again pop up today in relation to the Cardinals, frankly, first three prospects who are all uh, lefties. And, you know, yeah, historically, this term is thrown out there to say, like, well, they drafted this pitcher. This pitcher is pretty good, but um, there's a chance that he becomes a bullpen guy instead of a starting pitcher. Right. That's why they say reliever risk. Like, that's a bad thing. And uh, really, as I think about it today, I think I want those guys. And when you look at uh, Cooper and Ben, I don't know the pronunciation on this. I'm going to go Herpy, um, uh or Bryson Mouts or Pete Hansen, their top three prospects. Yes, these guys are left-handed. Yes, um, at least in the, in the case of the first two, for sure, they're coming from kind of a funky arm angle. So, yeah, you could absolutely see these guys, uh, you know, eventually becoming a bullpen guys, you know, in the vein of like an Andrew Miller or, you know, again, or, you know, uh, uh, you know, pick a lefty, you know, a funky left-handed reliever. But here's the thing. Compare that to a right-handed reliever, you know, or a right-handed pitcher, excuse me. 
compare that to Jake Woodford. Jake Woodford doesn't have reliever risk because if Jake Woodford can't be a starting pitcher, Jake Woodford's not particularly useful at all. So um, I've decided that um, I want guys with reliever risk because the reality is most of these guys aren't going to make it to the major leagues anyway. And among the guys that do make it to the major leagues, the majority of them are going to end up relievers. So if they have the potential to be a good reliever down the road, of course that's not plan A. Of course they're all going to get the chance to be a starter first. But uh, you know, for a guy that has a path, uh, maybe a, a, an even stronger path to be a useful reliever as well, to me that's a plus. And his name is Jerpy. The H is silent. Uh, I, I did some research today. Uh, my radio broadcaster experience drove me to do that. It is Jerpy. If that was, and I would name, not have guessed that. If that was my name, I would also say that it was pronounced Jerpy. By the way, <laughs> I I like to think back to uh, what did his uh, relatives say at Ellis Island. Uh, <laughs> this is actually how it's pronounced. It's Jerpy. Or did they say anything? And that's just what came out. Uh, is that the uh, Americanification uh, of the pronunciation? But well, ho- hopefully, you know, when he when he uh, rises to the Cardinals' rotation and you know spends ten years as a, as a fixture there, there'll be plenty of time for uh, Jim Hayes or someone to uh, to ask him exactly those those questions and get to the bottom of that. Um, ben, the other thing I, I wanted to mention. Um, so obviously, they went with these three left funky motion left-handed college arms this year um and uh, uh blake newberry actually wrote i thought a pretty good piece over at uh, cardinals nation i'd encourage everybody to check out about them and um you know one thing that he highlighted there was that uh you know these and this was more in 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 reference just to those top two picks uh, you know these are guys that get a lot of motion on their fastballs a lot of break on their fastballs even though they're not real high velocity. And again, they might be higher velocity than we expect. The Cardinals might be able to add velocity, etc. But I thought that was interesting. And again, you know, the, the Cardinals are always looking for that market inefficiency. And um, so uh, let's be honest, velocity is expensive. Uh, you know, everybody knows that high velocity is uh, is tough to hit. And so those guys tend to, I think, be drafted higher. They tend to get higher free agent deals. So it really made me wonder if the Cardinals are prioritizing movement on those fastballs. And that was something that drove them to these two guys. And, and even though I think in both cases, it's a little bit more lateral movement than sinker movement, which of course we're familiar with the Cardinals really prioritizing that sinker movement. You know what? It's still movement. And so it just made me wonder if their kind of internal analysis of pitchers, uh, if, if just this you know, movement almost as just a property of its own was something that they're, they're really looking for. Uh, I, I think it very well could be. Um, and I'm pretty excited about that. I'm also excited because um, I think that when you you look at pitch design and the complementary nature of pitches, and then you also look at the the current en vogue breaking ball is is the sweeper, the slider that is is more of a sweeper, like an Andrew Miller. Uh, when you look at Jerpy, uh, for example, you know he has he has good vertical. Uh, there, excuse me, good horizontal movement on his fastball, but he also has more of a sweeper slider, which is that popular 
breaking ball in the majors right now. And it's more like an Andrew Miller breaking ball and with his release point. And uh, you wonder if that sweeper is more better complemented by that type of a fastball that has that type of movement. And when you hear Randy Flores uh, compliment how good he is at pitch tunneling, um, it does make me wonder if this uh, type of angle is more complementary for a fastball with respect to that, that type of sweeping breaking ball. Uh, and I am uh, definitely going to be tracking what their, their velocity ratings are in the minors, uh, because even though everyone who's writing about Cardinals prospects has apparently forgotten, I still remember the summer of Lance Lynn when all of a sudden uh, the college mature pitcher who had a low 90s fastball was suddenly hitting the mid-90s and how exciting that was. Uh, and hopefully we have a summer or two ahead uh, of that with some of these 2022 draftees. Well, and I'll say especially considering that we do now have um, uh, you know a Cardinals pitching lab and we have a little bit more of a unified uh, field theory there. Uh, and, and adding velocity is something that there's a little bit more science behind now than there was when, when Lynn did it. Um, the, the other thing that I um, just wanted to kind of you know highlight was this was a bit of a departure in terms of the overall look of this draft from uh, you know from recent years. Uh, the move that we've seen um, pretty frequently over the last few years, kind of during the Flores regime, uh, yes, we have still seen these polished car- these polished college pitchers. You know that still remains a very Cardinals move, but oftentimes um, we saw a, a real overslot guy slotted in there, um, a real toolsy guy. Um, you know, often in that number two or number three um, slot. So um, you know, you think about a guy like like Baez, or you think about um, um, oh gosh, I just blanked on his name. The guy the guy that was uh, like Baez, they drafted a couple years before the. Uh, the young guy from New England, whose whose name I'm totally blanking on. Do um, uh, you know who I'm talking about, Ben? Trajan. Yeah, Trajan Fletcher. Exactly. You know. Um, yep. You know, anyway, uh, you know, similar kind of move, and, and even um, I believe they went pretty well over slot on Mason Wynn as well, right? So this is uh, a move that they had done kind of several times, and so honestly, when I saw Jerpy with that number one pick, I thought you know, okay, are we are, are we loading up for a number two or a number three that's going to be that, you know, that really toolsy guy? You know, it didn't take exactly that same shape this year. And of course, whether that's, uh, you know, like a conscious change in strategy, it's honestly probably more so just, you know, who's available at each point in, in the draft. But I, I thought that was an interesting um, kind of slight departure this year as well. Um, ben, anything else on the on the draft before we move on? Um, it, it's, it's been pretty college heavy and, uh, you know, we'll see how it, it fills out. Um, but I, I agree with you. It, it seemed like for a few years there, they were willing to take a, a little bit more, shall we say, risk with some high school pro- prospects or younger, uh, prospects who had more of a potential like all-star projection. And now it feels maybe that it's a little bit safer back in in the vein of what they used to do about 10 years ago, where it's maybe a little bit more college heavy. Um, But again, it's difficult to draw that type of conclusion because they could just have a board and 
this is the best guy for us right here, right now. Yep. Exactly. And, um, you know, it usually takes two to three drafts to identify a trend like that. Yeah, exactly. And, and one thing, I guess we haven't said this this year, but I just want to say it again. Uh, you know, the MLB draft is weird because it's a it's kind of a draft and an auction at the same time. It's not just what player is available, but it's knowing what's the what's the bonus that that player is looking for or willing to accept. Does that fit into our budget that we have left, etc.? So it's really hard to. I think grade uh, a draft or uh, you know things like that because there are just so many uh, unknowns there. Um, but one thing we can grade and evaluate, Ben, is uh, kind of how the season is going so far and how that lines up to our uh, predictions before the season. So um, we wanted to do just a, a quick kind of um, you know look ahead and maybe think about how things do or don't look um, as you and I predicted at the beginning of the year. We'll be touching on a lot of other specifics about the second half as we get to listener questions here in just a second. But um, for folks who were listening at the beginning of the year, or even those who weren't, during our season preview show, you and I each wrote uh, kind of a narrative prediction of what we thought the Cardinals season would be like. Um, and as we're here at the halfway point, Ben, I think it's a good time for us to look back at uh, how how well it's matched our prediction. So did did you have a chance to take a look back at your preseason prediction and, and how did you feel it matched up? I I think that it's uh, it holds up pretty well. Um, I said the Brewers would win the NL Central because they were better than the Cardinals last year and on paper they're better than the Cardinals. Uh, this season, um, I think they've had, you know, with injuries and and Yelich not hitting, uh, they have not been as good as I thought they might be. Um, but I think my assessment of of the Cardinals holds up. Uh, you know, I said the Pujols, Yadi, and Wainwright farewell tour uh, would be fun in April and probably fun in September, and I I did not have the foresight to see that Albert Pujols would be in the home run derby and an all-star because that's certainly (laughs) a lot of fun as well. Um, But then I said, but what about in the middle? And, you know, now we have Yachty on the IL. He's had a rough year. Uh, Pujols hasn't quite been as good as I think we would have hoped because Ali Marmol has played him too much against right-handed pitchers. Uh, And Wainwright, I think I said, would be uh, probably average-ish. And he's, he's been a little bit better than that, but his peripherals are not, you know, anything that's terribly exciting. And so, you know, I think kind of that nostalgia tour assessment holds up. Um, I also think that identifying the hole in the rotation uh, that was very foreseeable uh, holds up. And, you know, the team settling for Steven Matz instead of acquiring uh a higher quality starter because they could not count on Jack Flaherty. Uh, I think very clearly uh, that is an accurate assessment through this part of the season. And it's possible we might not see Jack Flaherty uh, throw more than a handful of innings for the Cardinals this year. Um, And so uh, it appears that they're going to have to right the wrong of their off season at the trade deadline to try to get another pitcher to come in and fortify the rotation and give them innings, whether or not they go for high quality innings or John Lester, Jay Happ innings remains to be seen. Um, 
but uh, you know, I, I think that assessment holds up pretty well. How do you feel about yours, Ben? Yeah, um, uh, you know, similarly, I, I feel pretty good about mine and the kind of uh, overall uh, framework I put on mine. I said that the 2022 Cardinals would feature an excellent defense, a much improved offense, a strong bullpen and a dumpster fire of a starting rotation. Uh, and Ben, I think we can probably all agree on the much improved offense and the dumpster fire of a starting rotation, can we not? Yes, uh, I think we can, except for Miles Michaelis. I, I have to say, uh, I think oh. Miles Michaelis has exceeded about everyone's expectations this year. Uh, his bounce back uh, to become an all-star and, you know, really probably one of the better pitchers in the National League has been a really pleasant surprise. Yeah, absolutely. And, and no, I agree. And I, I would say Michaelis is probably the MVP of the first half, really. I mean, if there was one, if you took one player away from this team, that would probably impact um, how they did the most. I would say it's unquestionably Miles Michaelis. Um, that said, if we're grading on a whole, Ben, this starting rotation, I'm sticking with dumpster fire. <laughs> um, well, yeah, if you're, if you're relying on Andre Palante and Dakota Hudson, as 40% of your rotation uh, with the the mediocrity or worse that they have been. Yeah, it, it's not good. Right. And and so, um, you know, the defense um, has, has been strong, although, uh, you know, injuries have um, taken a toll there, particularly uh, Bader and O'Neill missing as many games as they have. Um, uh, the, the bullpen, you know, I thought they would have a strong bullpen. Uh, I think they're getting to have a strong bullpen. I think they will have a strong bullpen in the second half. But, um, you know, a number of those guys that they brought in to fill spots there, um, you know, they, they haven't um, – a number of them didn't click or perform quite the way they wanted to. But I think that they're going to get there. You know, later in my prediction, I said that later in the season, much later than fans would like, the team will acquire the same type of thrift store pickups as they did last year, a few of, a few of whom will click and finally solidify the starting rotation. So I think you and I both, you know, kind of had that expectation going forward. And frankly, this is one reason that I'm always, I always tend to be a little bullish on the Cardinals when, and, and I think this is one reason why so often those projection systems are a little low on the Cardinals. Um, you know, again, the Cardinals do try to win every season. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're thrifty at the beginning of the season because they're trying to do it as cheap as they possibly can. But come the middle of the season, when there are some holes there, they do tend to, uh, you know, make some moves. So um, I think that's going to be the really interesting thing to see. I think clearly moves are needed on the pitching side, most especially in terms of the starting rotation. Um, and I, th I think those are going to come. Uh, you know, the million dollar question will be, who are they? You know, how big are they? Again, that was something that Mo did touch on during that Q&A event. You know, he kind of mentioned how last season, yes, they did go to these older pitchers. Um, but, you know, he said, frankly, that was, you know, that was who they felt was really their best option given the market that was last season. But he definitely held open the door that, you know, that's not necessarily what they would do this year. Um, perhaps, uh, you know, uh, somebody who's a little higher quality, somebody who has more years of team control might be some of those things that they're looking at. So, um, and, you know, Ben, I feel like that kind of leads us into, uh, in, into some of these questions um, because a number of these questions are going to um, deal with 
uh, with starting pitching. So, so why don't we uh, why don't we move into those? The first question actually does not, but um, we'll we'll start at the top of the list because otherwise I'm going to lose my place and it's going to become a mess. Uh, Sam Crawford uh, on Twitter asks, with DeYoung heating up in Memphis. Come October, what do you guess the middle infield looks like for the first playoff game? My guess is DeYoung and Edmund if a lefty on the mound, and Edmund Gorman if a righty. Um, and then he also asks if there's any scenario a healthy Albert gets left off a playoff roster. Ben, what do you think on the DeYoung question as well as the uh, Albert Pujols question? Um, I don't see a scenario in which Pujols gets left off the playoff roster. I think... Um, at a minimum, they want him on the bench to pinch hit against the lefty reliever in a big spot uh, yep. if they need it. Uh, um, so I think Pujols is on the playoff roster. I, I, I would be surprised if he gets left off. Um, with respect to DeYoung, he's all body of work in AAA, and I think he's going to have to heat up to a higher temperature for a lot longer before the team promotes him and gives him playing time at shortstop. It, it would genuinely surprise me um, if he is up and playing a lot, uh, you know, for example, against left-handed pitching as part of a platoon, um, you know, he, without a better performance down in triple a yeah and I, I agree on both counts i don't think there's any scenario that albert is not on a playoff roster he's going to be the last man on the bench the last man on your bench is not that particularly valuable anyway they're, they're really not going to contribute much um, albert does contribute in a very specific way and um, i just can't imagine them leaving him off the team for kind of what he represents in this final season for the you know minimal upgrade that uh you know putting uh you know whoever else would potentially be left off be it you know burleson or yepes or or newt bar or whoever on there um and, and yeah you know paul de young i feel like you know every time he hits uh, a few home runs and has a strong week we kind of see that on, uh, you know, on Twitter and things like that. But you know, if you look at his overall numbers down there in Memphis, they're they're not that great. And I think Ben, you and I know they're not that great as well because uh, you know we do live in a team, a town with a AAA team. And frankly, guys that have uh, you know three plus years of major league experience, when they go to the minors, they do tend to put up really big numbers because the quality of the competition is not as high. And those guys who can't, you know, who can't be as consistent, uh, you know, a guy like Paul DeYoung is going to punish them, but the Cardinals know this as well. And so um, I don't see anything he's doing there that screams, this guy has to be brought up to St. Louis. I do think there's a chance he comes back up there. Um, I mean, honestly, Edmondo Sosa has defensive value, but you know, offensively, if he's not leaning into the strike zone to be hit by a pitch, I don't think he brings much at all. So, you know, I could see a point where, you know, maybe they say, hey, we've got this sunk cost with Paul DeYoung. Paul DeYoung does play good defense as well. Um, you know, and Paul DeYoung has clearly more of an offensive upside than Edmondo Sosa does. So, you know, is there a point where they bring him up to take that Sosa role? I don't know. Is there a point where they try to kind of unload DeYoung as part of a trade package? I think I would expect that a little bit more. But um, 
it, come October, I don't think I think there's almost zero chance that Paul DeYoung is a you know is a starting player. I think Tommy Edmond is the shortstop on this team, unless something dramatically changes. Um, I think uh, Nolan Gorman will will take a lot of that time at second base. I think Brendan Donovan will take a considerable amount of that time at second base as well. Um, so that that would be my expectation. Um, so now we're gonna get into some of these. Uh, we have a number of questions kind of related to trades. And um, Ace uh, asks, let's hear your packages for potential Syndergaard, Montas, and Soto trades. And Ben, I don't know if we have full packages there, or maybe we do, but let's maybe kind of talk about each of those guys as it relates to the Cardinals acquiring them. Those are obviously three, you know, fairly big names that could move at the trade deadline. And I think Soto in particular, we had the big news this last week that he rejected the Nationals offer. He is available. So um, I know just even being at the ballpark and talking to a lot of Cardinals fans this weekend, a lot of people excited about could the Cardinals acquire Juan Soto. What do you think, Ben? Is that a move the Cardinals would make? Is, could they make it? And what would it cost them? Uh, that that is a really interesting question um, because of where the Cardinals are right now, and um, and then also you know how much control there is. Soto is under team control through the end of next year, um, and and then what are the Cardinals' obligations after that? And I hear a lot of people saying you know, the Cardinals will never pony up the money that it would take to acquire Juan Soto. Um, and, you know, some folks will dismiss this out of hand as kind of like, well, yeah, what, you know, what did you expect them to do? They, they knew that this would not result in anything, but folks may recall that, that back uh, at one of the more recent uh, Marlins fire sales, they were selling Giancarlo Stanton. And the uh, Marlins had agreed to a package subject to Stanton's approval where they would send him to the Cardinals. And at that point in time, Stanton had uh, one of, and it might have even been the biggest contract in Major League Baseball at that time. And the Cardinals were going to at least eat a portion of it. You know, the other thing is that acquiring a, a soon-to-be free agent superstar with one year remaining to allow them to sell him on St. Louis is kind of the Cardinals' uh, M.O. Well, um, and, and, you know, and they Ben, did it with it's, Goldschmidt, they it's, did it with Hayward. I was going to say, it's worth noting, too, that Soto actually has two years left, so Next year he'll be in arbitration and and actually oh right twenty twenty four because he was um you know he he'll be a a fourth year arbitration eligible player there so they would have two years of team control at arbitration um, following this year so so I apologize because I screwed that up but at any rate um, if you get out so this actually even it makes an even stronger point because um, do you know who's uh, contract comes off the books after the 2024 season, Ben? Uh, is it Paul Goldschmidt? It is Paul Goldschmidt. <laughs> and that's a $26 million salary. And so the amount of money 
that the Cardinals have that they must pay for the 2025 season, uh, it goes like this. Nolan Arenado, $30.555 million. Steven Matz, $11 million. And I just pause there because there's nothing else. And so this is a move that it could work. Um, now they would also have to pay Juan Soto uh, a very high salary for the next two years, but the St. Louis Cardinals ownership could afford to do that. Now, um, all of this circles back around. Now, what does that deal look like? Um, you know, you, you look at some of the trades that we've seen, like we've seen Goldschmidt, Goldschmidt, the Goldschmidt trade, Goldschmidt was much older. Hayward's closer in age, but he is still older. And so I think you're looking at just a, a massive haul of, yeah. of prospects. Well, um, and, you're and probably I, looking at t- at least two top 10. Yeah. And then some. I agree. And, and I don't know if you saw, you know, Jeff Jones on Twitter earlier today, he, he posted, um, you know, he was messing around with that uh, baseball trade values, trade simulator tool that I've mentioned on here before that I kind of like to play with that can help you sort of, uh, you know, match up that surplus value. And, and and the one that he put together, just as an example, first of all, it was Juan Soto, and it also had the Nationals, um, including um, uh, Corbin in there, who, of course, has a, a just, you know, uh, has, has been terrible and is owed a, a ton of money. So it's dumping some of that salary as well. And even so, using that tool to balance out the value, he had the, the Cardinals giving up uh, Jordan Walker, Matthew Liberatore, uh, Alec Burleson. So that's actually three top 100 prospects right there, Ben, plus Harrison, Harrison Bader and uh, a, a minor league pitcher um, as well. So, uh, you know, and again, that that's just kind of for, for illustration purposes. Um, but it gives you a sense of the, the scale there. And it's it's kind of a lot. Do you? Um, so And Ben, I think you made a really good point about the fact that you know, the way his uh, free agent years hit, it actually could potentially fit for them to try that classic Cardinals move where they bring the guy in and they sign him to an extension before that. But do you do you think they would be willing to give up the guys needed to do that? And do you think that they would even try that given that Juan Soto was represented by Scott Boris? Um, I, I, I don't think that Boris is a deal breaker, uh, but then again, I'm old enough to remember when Kyle Loesch instructed Boris to get an extension and the Cardinals and Loesch signed an extension before the 2008 season was over. Now, that being said, I'm also old enough uh, to remember when Scott Boris angered Bill DeWitt Jr., and he withdrew from contract talks while John Mosellock continued them. And then the Cardinals ultimately signed Boris client Matt Holliday uh, to a, a big deal. Um, now, that being said, those e- each of those signings was over 10 years ago. And Boris and Soto just walked away from a, you know, a $440 million contract uh, for 15 years, which I think technically is actually 13 years of, of free agent years. But that would be far larger than anything the Cardinals have demonstrated even a remote interest in doing. Um, so would they give up that many prospects for two years of Soto 
and the opportunity to pay to then lose him in free agency. And I just, that's, that's where I get hung up because everything about DeWitt, since they have gotten rid of Jockety, um, the De- DeWallet ball era has been toward, you know, this pipeline of young, inexpensive talent, and then filling that in uh, with elite players, uh, you know, who aren't on these massive contracts. And so I would be very surprised if they gave up that type of haul just for two years of Soto. Um, In particular, with the Molina, Pujols, Wainwright era ending. I feel like we're we're entering into, although all of that money is coming off the books as well. And so uh, I, but nonetheless, um, while I could talk myself into it uh, to be able to spend Bill DeWitt's money, <laughs> uh, I just, I don't think uh, DeWitt could be talked into it. And I would be shocked uh, if they engaged in, for any length of time uh, in such negotiations. Yeah, agreed. And, and I just, just a couple more points be- before we uh, move on here. Um, you know, Juan Soto, it's not just that he's going to be a, a free agent um, uh, for the 2025 season. He's going to be a 26-year-old free agent. So, I mean, that sounds to me like that could be just, uh, you know, absolute record-setting contract on the open market. And obviously, Soto and Boris think that as they, you know, rejected a, a fairly large extension offer from the Nationals. Um, I don't see Bill DeWitt being willing to set the market. And I've always thought that was an important point about the Nolan Arenado deal. You know, when the Cardinals acquired Nolan Arenado, they did take on one of the larger contracts um, out there, but they took on a contract that was uh, kind of the market had set on its own and had set a year or two before. So I think they had a little bit of time to look at it and say, yeah, we think that this is a reasonable contract kind of given what we know about the market. I think they're going to be incredibly hesitant to set that top market price sort of value. And the other thing, Ben, just I think maybe the last thing here before we move on that we haven't really touched on is, you know, frankly, I don't think the need on this team is uh, is is offense. I think the offense here is pretty strong. I see the need much more on the pitching side. So even though obviously, you know, Juan Soto is a generational talent, obviously if you could acquire a player like Juan Soto, you know, you would no matter how strong you felt your offense was. I don't see them being especially, you know, aggressively motivated to acquire offense at that level. So that's just another reason I don't really see it happening. And again, if it did, you know, again, I don't I don't know that we can give this questioner the exact names that we would put on it. But I think Jeff Jones threw out some names there that kind of give you an idea of the universe that we're talking in there. Um this questioner also mentioned Frankie Montas and Noah Syndergaard. You know, Montas, I think, is pretty often mentioned as kind of maybe the, the top pitcher that everyone sort of knows is on the market right now. Now, just for um, for comparison's sake, and again, using that baseball trade values uh, site, uh, 
Juan Soto's value is about seven times that of, uh, of Montas. <laughs> so, um, and Montas has one more year of club control following this year. Um, he's got a 3.26 ERA, a 3.14 xFIP. So, you know, he's, he's pitching about as you would expect him to. Um, he's got a, a good ground ball rate, um, a, a good walk rate. Um, his K rate is not you know, excellent in terms of baseball overall, but it would lead the team. It would be slightly ahead of Steven Matz. Um, Noah Syndergaard um, uh, actually has a four ERA, a 4.20 FIP. Um, and I don't think, I think a lot of us think Noah Syndergaard is still uh, Thor from the Mets. Did you know that Noah Syndergaard has an 18.6% strikeout rate this season, Ben? Um, I, I have been fam just because i was interested and he is not the same pitcher um and he's really kind of recreated himself as as more of a pitch to contact league average guy and so you know he would in my opinion be much more of the profile that the team would go after uh than montas yeah, I think that's possible, but you know, and a huge difference here as well. Noah Syndergaard is on a one-year deal. He's on a twenty-one million dollar one-year deal um, this season. So, um, you know, the amount of that that would follow the Cardinals would be relatively low. But he'd be gone at the end of this season, you know, unless they sign an extension. Um, Montas would be around um, for next year as well. Uh, do, do you see either of them uh, being um, potential? Starting pitching candidates, or and actually, Ben, let me bring up, and I am going to jump down in our questions um, because we did have um, uh, someone else, a longtime Cards fan, said since STL won't give up the capital needed for a clear front of a rotation starter, would Merrill Kelly be an app uh, an option? Um, he says dollars are no issue with him signed for two more years. What might be a reasonable offer to Arizona? What might they agree to? And again, just to give us some context here, um, Merrill Kelly. Is making five million dollars this year, eight million dollars um, the next two years, and then a seven million dollar team option. He's got a three point two six ERA, a four point one two xFIP, so ERA maybe outstripping xFIP there um, a little bit. Um, and you know, eight percent walk rate, nineteen percent strikeout rate, forty three percent ground ball rate would definitely fit into this starting rotation, but would not would be you know kind of middle of the pack in any of these areas. So. Um, We've got kind of three names out there, Syndergaard, Montas, and Kelly. Um, obviously, there's other pitchers that could be available, um, certainly, but I think they're kind of three interesting types for us. Are any of those either specific guys or even types that you think they might pursue? Um, you know, when you when you hear Mosellock talk, uh, I think he has an idea of value, and he, he likes that club control uh beyond this year and if he can't get it you know he's okay going for maybe a, a lower caliber pitcher yeah um montas would surprise me because of the shoulder issues yes and i i think it's one of the more fascinating uh players entering the trade deadline because i just i don't know how you value that uh entering you know, before you had the shoulder issues, I thought uh, Barrios from last trade deadline was probably the closest thing you could possibly come to for value. And you're probably looking at two top five prospects within the organization, um, you know, depending on valuation is all relative, which is a point that Mosellock made at the trade deadline and never say never. But um, 
you know, if it's lower than that, he probably becomes a little bit more interesting if uh, the MRI and, and the medical examination uh, pans out and, and looks okay to you. Well, and, um, but Ben, I think even, you know, gosh, I, do, I think they'd want to see even more than an MRI. I think they want to see, you know, two to three starts between now and the trade deadline. And they want to see. Oh, sure. And throw six to seven innings. And he looks just like he did because, you know, even though, yeah, you're getting an extra year of control with Montas, you're really acquiring him for this season. And shoulder injuries are terrifying. So I'm with you. I think they would need to see a lot in the next, you know, two weeks in order to make that happen. And I think that's pretty unlikely. I, I don't see them doing it. And I, even as Cardinal fans, we can all just look at the last month. Jack Flaherty looked very good in the minor leagues. And after his last minor league rehabilitation start, the Cardinals, uh, I believe it was John Denton uh, from MLB.com who tweeted that his StatCast data pitches was as good as the team had seen since 2019. And it corroborated what Flaherty's assessment was of how he. Well, you you would feel very good about having that pitcher coming off of that performance take the next step up to the majors, and that's what Flaherty did. And then he did not look good, and now he's back on the injured list uh, with a shoulder injury. And so, even if Montas goes out there and gives you two or three vintage starts. How comfortable do you feel that he's going to be able to do do that for the rest of the year? And I would not feel that comfortable, and I don't suspect many MLB teams will. But I, but I bet someone makes the move. Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, and no, and these these are some interesting names. I have to say, um, you know, Kelly was someone who I was aware of as you know, being an option out there and looking closely at him, especially seeing that salary over those next couple of years. I think. You know, I can definitely see the Cardinals, you know, doing something like that. So again, that's five million this year, eight million the next two years, and then a seven million dollar team option. Just for context, the team's playing paying Wainwright eight million dollars this season. They're paying Matt's eight million this season, although Matt's is gonna go up to twelve million later in that contract, and Michaelis is making sixteen million. So, you know, that's in the universe of what this team is currently paying starting pitchers, and I think relative to how Merrill Kelly fits in there, you know, that seems like you know, dollars wise, that could make sense. Um, so Ben, we had an, another kind of more general pitching question here that sort of relates to this as well. Um, Aiden Cox asks, when it comes down to pitching, what is the main thing you are looking for? Is it strikeouts, innings, or ground balls? And I'm going to assume that he kind of means, you know, what are the what are the Cardinals looking for here? Because because Ben, uh, you know, as much as we would like them to defer to us on these moves, they they actually don't. Um, they they do not return our phone calls. <laughs> Uh, no, they don't. Um, I, I think that they look at uh, strikeout to walk ratio um, and, and then ground balls. Uh, and, and they feel that they, they have a starter that they can turn into something. And so I, I think that's what they look at, kind of the strikeout to walk ratio. Um, and then with the way that Bush Stadium plays and the defense behind them, they can have fly ball pitchers and they can have ground ball pitchers. Um, but we all know that that fly balls do more damage than ground balls, generally speaking. So I think if everything else was equal, they would probably prefer some grounders. Yeah. And, you know, I, I always think about it both on the pitching side and on the, um, you know, the hitting side. Kind of when we think about, you know, your, your three true outcomes, right? 
all of those three true outcomes are things that you're just taking off the table as either a good thing or a bad thing, right? So for a pitcher, strikeouts are something they're taking off the table, and that's a good thing. Uh, walks are something that they're taking off the table, but that's a bad thing. Um, home runs are a bad thing too, although home run rate for pitchers may be, you know, a little less of a, you know, important thing that we're necessarily looking at. So, um, you know, as far as how you have to pay for those things, strikeouts are incredibly expensive. And so it's, it's hard to imagine the Cardinals, uh, particularly in a starting pitcher, they're expensive. So um, while obviously if they had their choice, they would love a starting pitcher who had a 25 or 30% strikeout rate, but that's probably not something that's available to them or that they're willing to, to, you know, pay for either in, in you know, dollars or prospects. Um, so absolutely, I think the, really the most important thing for them is that they keep those walks down because, again, that's something that's just guaranteed to be a bad thing. Um, so I think absolutely you are not going to see them acquire a player with a high walk rate, a pitcher with a high walk rate. It's just not going to happen. Um, and then, of course, if you have a guy who has – uh, a low walk rate, but also has a relatively low strikeout rate, you're leaving tons of balls in play. So then, yes, ground balls really become the thing because ground balls are the way that you can kind of um, push push down a little bit on those ball in play luck and, um, you know, help it work a little bit more in your player, in your favor. So when I think about guys the Cardinals are looking for, um, you know, I mean, I basically think we're sorting by lowest rock rate and then we're among those guys we're looking at, you know, ground ball rate. That's that's what I think they're looking at. All right, Ben, we have a question from DeWallet Inspector uh, related to relievers, and he asks, who are your favorite targets for the middle of the bullpen? Does Mo actually get a Dr. Pepper solution to that? end of the rotation, or will we get more Dr. Thunder and Mountain Lightning? And before we get to that, Ben, are you familiar with Mountain Lightning? Because I, I thought we were you know, pretty much experts on store brand cola, but I'm not sure I, I know uh, Mountain Lightning. I don't think I have ever had Mountain Lightning, um, but it sounds like it would be better than Dr. Thunder because it's lightning. Yes, it, I, Mountain Th Mountain Lightning is a great name. Frankly, I assume it's a Mountain Dew um, analog, but I suppose we can we can follow up with that on a later time. I suppose focusing in on on the question, um, Ben, you you actually you, you proposed a middle reliever trade uh, last time, did you not? I did. I uh, I opined that I thought for sure that Mosellock would acquire Erasmo Ramirez from the Washington Nationals, who has a very low strikeout rate and a very low walk rate. Um, and this year at least, and for his career, has a decent ground ball rate. And all that make him an average-ish reliever. Uh, he does have a really high home run per fly ball rate, uh, but presumably in Bush Stadium, uh, that would get a little bit better. So I identified him as a likely target last episode. Yeah, and and I will say in terms of just the general part of the question, you know, are they going to go store brand or name brand? If we're talking relievers here, I think they are absolutely going store brand. I don't think there's any reason to spend a lot of money on relief pitchers. Um, as, as I think is well documented on this show, I just I don't believe in that. Um, in general, because they're so volatile. Um, I think when you spend money on relief pitchers, you end up with Brett Cecil, you end up with uh, uh, 
uh, Andrew Miller, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I don't see them doing this. Um, you know, because he asked about specific names, you and you came up with a great one with uh, last week. You know, I took a look. One name that jumped out to me was uh, Chris Martin, who's pitching for the Cubs this year. He's 36 years old. You might remember he's the guy who was, you know, completely out of baseball. You know, came back in. You know, kind of a good story. He's been around for a few years now. Um, He's got a 4.34 ERA with um, just a 2.19 xFIP. Um, he has the third lowest walk rate in baseball, Ben. I'll be honest, that's the reason <laughs> I zeroed in on him, because I think that's pretty important to the Cardinals. Um, <laughs> and yet he has a 28.7 strikeout rate and a 55% ground ball rate. Um, so pretty strong numbers. He's due $2.5 million this year. Um, uh, anyway... I think that's a possibility. I think that's kind of a profile of a guy they would look for. Um, you know, the age, I think, though, is a concern. Maybe the durability is a concern, you know, because, again, I think they want some innings there. But, um, no, I think they're going to follow a path similar to what they did last year, you know, which which got a guy like TJ McFarland, who they pulled out of AAA from another organization, Um you know, uh, Luis Garcia, who had kind of, you know, become a, a, an also ran with his organization. Those are the kind of guys I would expect that we're going to see. Um, lastly, Ben, um, we had a, a, a question from our good friend Alex Crisafuli, who we were able to see um, this weekend at Blogger uh, and Podcaster Day there. It was great to see Alex. Um, I don't think we've we've thanked Daniel Shoptaw, um, C70, who was kind of the organizer of the event as well, and so many other people. I'm not going to start naming people because I know if I do, I'm going to forget some. But uh, you know, we saw so many um, kind of you know colleagues we've written with, or even just people who we admire and listen to or read. It was great to see everybody. Um, uh, but Alex uh, happened to uh, send us a question as well. By the way, Alex is on the Great Chirps podcast with Tara Wellman. I'm sure most of you know that already. We used to write with him at VEB as well. Alex's question, he says, um, well, actually, Ben, he does say, I have a question for the esteemed host. So I should include that part because it is a compliment to us. Um, he says, when the Cardinals <laughs> traded for Marcella Zuna prior to the 2018 season, I thought it was a great trade or at least a pretty good trade. Filled a need with a big bat in the outfield. And he won a gold glove too. I love gold gloves because even people like Marcelo Zuna can win them. There should be more awards that aren't always merit-based. Uh, anyway, here's my question. The trade is now very bad, very, very bad, for a whole slew of reasons. What is my responsibility when I discuss this trade? Because frankly, I don't think it's fair that I can't join in and pile on the front office just because I too was dead ass wrong. Am I not allowed to whine about this trade just because I would have done it too? And because if I was actually in charge of the team, I would have run them into the ground in six months because of, but not limited to, emptying the entire farm in exchange for Jazz Chisholm? Uh, TLDR, are we allowed to complain about trades that seemed good at the time but ended up being bad? For example, the Marcel Ozuna trade. So, Ben, I think that's just a really interesting question about how we respond as fans. What's, what's your take on that? Um, I think that fans can complain about whatever they want, whenever they want. That doesn't mean that folks need to listen to them. Um, and I think that's maybe part of the reason I find Twitter less interesting than I used to. Uh, uh, but if if I am going to comment on it in a, in a semi-public way, um, I tend to... Uh, try to understand where the trade went wrong or the move went wrong uh, and why I thought it was good, why I was wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that 
allows me to kind of identify was my thinking wrong at the time in a way that I should have been able to recognize. Um, and I, I hate the appeal to authority when making moves, Ben. Yeah. Um, but there is also a degree of, hey, you can criticize them for whatever because they have way more information about every player in this trade than you do. Right. And so, you know, maybe they should have been able to identify something like, you know, Marcelo Zuna's uh, happy-go-lucky Hakuna Matata personality, except in certain situations um, uh, that apparently uh, are not on a baseball field. And so how does that, uh, you know, kind of influence what your assessment of him is? And so uh, when it comes to that trade, you know, I have a hard time criticizing them for it and, and in particular because I just am not convinced that the St. Louis Cardinals organization allows Alcantara or uh, Gallon to turn into the pitchers they are today uh, just given their track record in recent years developing pitching. And so I have just kind of that it that to me merits criticism in a in a different way from the the thought process that went into that trade what is your take in this situation ben yeah i'd say i'm i'm pretty i'm pretty much with you on that and it's worth noting during that q a with mo he actually referenced this trade and said you know boy you know kind of i you know you know, wish I could have that one back. It'd be great to have Sandy starting for us every five days, you know? So, I mean, you know, they're clearly aware that, you know, yeah, this was, you know, this was one that didn't work out for them. But I, I guess I'd say a couple things. Number one, um, you know, we're pretty lucky as Cardinals fans because we can really easily identify the trades that didn't work out because so few of them fall into that category. <laughs> and this one is definitely, you know, the biggest black eye of the last few years. So, I, you know, I think, uh, you know, we can all certainly, as we watch Alcantara and Gallon, you know, succeed um, to the level they have, um, you know, we can all kind of groan and feel like, oh, God, I wish, you know, I wish we had still had those guys. You know, that's completely normal. But, um, you know, I think what Alex is getting at here is important as well. It's important to um, not just say, well, look at these idiots. Can you believe they traded uh, a guy who's you know probably going to win the Cy Young and another great pitcher who they clearly knew was that a, no nobody knew that's what those guys were at that point in time and and you're right Ben we would hope that the the front offices know a little bit more than we do and that more often than not they those aren't the guys that they trade but you know sometimes they guess wrong and this is a trade where the structure of the trade made sense then, right? They did need um, a significant offensive upgrade. There's no way they were going to get um, a, a bat of the of the quality they were looking for. And even if Marcelo Zuna wasn't as good as we hoped he would be, you know, he was still a you know middle of the order hitter when he was here in St. Louis. And they weren't going to acquire that kind of a player without giving up. Uh, prospects of a certain quality so they had to give up some prospects to get that and frankly it just didn't work out great on either end the prospects they gave up ended up being better than they expected they would be and the guy they acquired ended up being a little bit worse so you know again like it's not one that I lose a ton of sleep over because I think they were pointed in the right direction and they just you know it, it, it broke for them uh, wrong in both ways and you know it's baseball sometimes that happens um anything no, else? i i i agree and 
Oh, no, I was just going to say another comment that Mo had was that they don't always win every trade. You know, this isn't fantasy baseball. You brought that up earlier. And I think what you probably had is the Cardinals are giving up players that they value because they need an outfielder who is valuable to the Marlins and Major League Baseball as a whole. And so you're not going to be able to acquire that type of player. And, and you touched on this without giving up something of value in return. And how that value pans out remains to be seen. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think that the Cardinals were, you know, doing the Antonio Banderas assassins reaction after sending the email that they accept the trade where they're like, yes. You know, it, it was as hard as it was exciting because they were giving up talented players in exchange for a player who has also proven to be pretty talented over his major league career. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Ben, um, we, we've, we've had a pretty long show today, which I know um, we were kind of planned ahead of time, it being the all-star break and all, and folks having multiple off days to listen to us. But still, I think we should uh, wind things down here. So, Ben, as we move forward, I'm curious, what will you be watching for? Uh, the thing that I am going to be watching most closely is Andre Palante's strikeout to walk ratio, um, because I think it's getting into the danger zone, kind of the, the way that he has been pitching. And I'm just not sure how much longer the Palante as starter experiment uh, can last. Well, it's funny you should say that because... Um... I uh, am going to be watching Andre Pallante as well as Zach Thompson and Matthew Liberatore because I think, you know, even in a world where uh, Steven Matz comes back and, uh, you know, is a useful starter and even in a world where the Cardinals acquire, um, uh, you know, a, a decent uh, quality arm out there. Um, there's a good chance that one of these three guys is still going to see some significant time uh, in the starting rotation. And the other two potentially could be guys that move into the bullpen and help solidify that bullpen and maybe fill some of those last couple slots in there that, you know, are currently, uh, you know, McFarland and uh, Verhagen and, you know, kind of the last of the guys that at least so far are not really working out. So um, I, it's going to be interesting for me to see, I think, as we come back from the break, um, you know, my expectation is that Thompson and Libertor will both be down in AAA and um, kind of stretching out to potentially be starters. Uh, Payante, I think, will remain in the rotation. But um, I think it's pretty fluid between those three guys. And so um, I'm just going to be keeping an eye on, on each of them to kind of see, you know, does, does any one of them rise to the level that they, you know, could be uh, kind of a, a number five guy in the rotation if and when needed? Um, and, you know, the others, um, do, you know, do they potentially become a, a solid bullpen piece? So, uh, Ben, last thing uh, for folks, do you have an off-day recommendation? Uh, my off-day recommendation, uh, if you're looking for something to watch uh, other than baseball, uh, as the All-Star break uh, winds down, uh, I am going to recommend the FX-produced series on Hulu, the streaming service, and the show is called The Bear. And it sounds like a sitcom premise. It's a guy who's a world-class chef in New York City. Uh, his brother was running the family Chicago beef sandwich restaurant in Chicago. His brother kills himself and leaves uh, him the restaurant. Uh, 
and he has to go back and he's trying to turn the restaurant around and bring some of the professionalism uh, from the higher end restaurant kitchens that he has worked in. Uh, it's really great drama, really good characters. And the episodes are about 30 to 40 minutes long. So you can uh, fit one in, uh, you know, usually most nights, depending on what your, your schedule is like. Uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it has also been renewed for a season two. Uh, so if you do decide to give it a chance uh, and you like it, there should be some more on the way if everything goes according to plan. So my recommendation is is the TV series The Bear on Hulu, and it's produced by FX. Uh, yeah, I, I have only watched one episode so far, but really enjoyed that and definitely plan on watching more. Um, my recommendation is a book that I that was just published and I just picked up. It's uh, The Church of Baseball by Ron Shelton. Um, the subtitle is The Making of Bull Durham, Home Runs, Bad Calls, Crazy Fights, Big Swings, and a Hit. Um, so as you would guess, this is a book by Ron Shelton, writer-director of Bull Durham, about the making of Bull Durham. Um, and if you weren't aware, uh, Ron Shelton was also a minor league baseball player himself. He had a fairly, I think, a five-year career in the minor leagues, rose all the way up to AAA. He ended up retiring from baseball um, during the the first uh, players' strike in the kind of early to mid '70s there, and uh, um, found his way after a number of years kind of into Hollywood, etc. So um, I have to admit I'm only about halfway through the book, so I haven't completed it yet. But um, you know, Ben, if there could be a book that was like scientifically engineered just for me, I think this might be that book <laughs> because um, it's a little bit about baseball. Um, it's uh, about my favorite baseball movie, and it's also, frankly, a great book about um, uh, screenwriting and how movies get made. And uh, of course, in my in my other career, that's something that I've, I've done for a number of years. And so, it, it's really just a great read on all of those fronts. So. Um, you know, I would say if you're just a baseball fan, you will get some some interesting baseball stuff in here, but it's not all about that. But it's also just a really great introduction to, again, that process of how movies get made. Um, Shelton also gives you a lot of insight into the writing of the screenplay and just kind of how movies are structured as well. So whether you're actually a writer or interested in becoming a writer yourself or you just find that interesting, I think it's a, a really good read there as well. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a, a very good baseball book and frankly, a great book about uh, movie making making and screenwriting. So I would definitely recommend The Church of Baseball. Ben, anything else before we uh, wrap up this all-star spectacular? No, I, I'm excited. The Cardinals are a half game out of first place, and I think the second half of the season is going to be a fun race for the NL Central between the Cardinals and Brewers, and I'm excited to get it started. I am as well, and throughout the second half of the season, we will be with you every off day, so you can count on having a new episode from us as uh, as those off days arrive. Um, so thank you once again to Devon for our theme music, to Dan for our social media, to all of you for listening and, and the many, many people who sent in questions, who interact with us on Twitter and other social media. We love to hear from you guys and we look forward to talking again on the next Cardinals Off Day. Go Cardinals!